Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. Later in the show, I'll dig into the vault to introduce you to Mick Rock, the legendary photographer known as the man who shot the 70s for his iconic images of everyone from Sid Barrett to David Bowie to Lou Reed to E. Pop to Queen, the Ramones, Blondie, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and many others shot over 100 album covers and was one of the most famous names in rock photography. He passed away in 2021, but I wanted to revisit this interview and hear his amazing stories one more time. We'll also meet Gord St. Clair. Best known as a bass player and one of the songwriters in the Tragically Hip, he's now a, quote, reluctant solo artist with a new album. The new music is the follow-up to his debut solo project, 2020's Taxi Dancer, which was released to critical acclaim and brings back a more rhythmic and driving rock and roll energy that just might put you in the mind of the hip. First, though, let's get to know M. Griner. She's a Canadian musician and vocal coach. David Bowie named M as one of his two favorite Canadian acts. U2 frontman Bono named her song Almighty Love as one of six songs that he wished that he had written. Griner toured in David Bowie's band singing and playing keyboards and appears on the recordings Bowie at the Beeb and Glastonbury 2000. M helped make the first music video in outer space with Chris Hatfield and is also the author of a book called The Healing Power of Singing, Raise Your Voice, Change Your Life, What Touring with David Bowie, Single Parenting and Ditching the Music Business Taught Me in 25 Easy Steps. Her new album is Business and Pleasure. It's a celebration of the Detroit radio scene and the music that shaped her childhood. From Motown, Jazz and Pop to Steely Dan, Fleetwood Mac and the Doobies, Business and Pleasure is infused with the sunshine soul and stellar playing of the late 70s and early 1980s. We talk about the album, Yacht Rock, Singing with Def Leppard, and much, much more with M. Griner, who joined me via Zoom. Tell me a little bit then about your relationship with radio as you were growing up. Well, radio was a lifeline. I remember getting a little GE radio, which makes me sound like I'm a thousand years old, but <laughs> I remember it was just like the greatest gift to get for Christmas. It was like a GE radio with a cassette deck in it. And that gave me the portal to the outside world because of course we didn't have anything else in the country. Um, to listen to Detroit radio, but also Canadian radio. You know, there was that mix of, you know, kind of the new wave pop Canadian stuff. But then from Detroit, it was a whole other thing. Like there's like Anita Baker and DeBarge and like Michael McDonald and all that, right? And I always really loved that stuff. And I never really pursued it in my own songwriting um, in my twenties. I was always really taken with radio of that era in that the charts hadn't yet become so uh, solidified. So there wasn't a dance chart and there wasn't an, uh, you know, there was a chart, the probably yes. the Billboard Hot 100, and you could have a country song next to, uh, you know, a song by Steely Dan next to, and I, I think that it sort of opened your mind to a lot more influences than when it became so segmented. Yes, I remember listening to American Top 40 every weekend. And my brother, who was five years older than me, 
not only did he listen to American Top 40, he made his own charts, like of his favorite songs. Wow. And he like he still has them. Like that was the kind of like nerdy household we lived in. And um, yeah, it was like I say, a lifeline when there was not a whole lot going on. Um, it was kind of a lonely upbringing to just be able to escape into, like you say, like all those different genres and you're just accepting of whatever was on the chart, right? And how directly then did that influence uh, the songs on this album? And, and how are they different from the music that we would already know of yours? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it all starts with Michael McDonald. I, I think in the pandemic, we asked ourselves important questions. My important question being, you know, if I die tomorrow, who do I want to do out with? So <laughs> um, I've always loved his voice. Like and he people. still sounds the same. <laughs> a friend of mine just saw him play live recently, and he still sounds like that, even though he must be in his 70s. So, incredible. So I had written a song called... Um, if I can find true love, I can find Michael McDonald because I had fallen in love in the pandemic. And so I thought, well, anything's possible. I'm Griner happy. How is it possible? And um, when I wrote this song, I went on a mission to find him. And the song itself doesn't appear on this album, but it led me to a producer who's a friend of Michael McDonald's. You're listening to M. Griner on The Richard Krause Show. Her album, Business and Pleasure, is available wherever you buy fine music. He said, you know, I don't know that this is a good idea. Like, I don't think he would duet on a song that has his name in it. But um, this producer, Fred Mullen, he said, um, but if you want to make more music like this, I'm your guy. Like, I'm your producer. And that just really inspired me. So, um, yeah, like, I think what I tuned into is the fact that we're about to lose a lot of that generation of musician. And I, it became an urgency between me and my partner, Michael Holmes, who wrote a lot of this record with me. Um, well, half of it, really. It's, it's really a collaboration. To, like, find those people who are of that era to make this kind of an album, right? Because soon we won't have them around. So... That became an, an urgent kind of uh, impetus for writing a lot of songs. Well, it does seem that every day you hear another band announcing a farewell tour. Yeah. 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 So yeah. there's, there, you know, you, it, I remember in the 80s, I was determined to see every great rock and roll artist from the 50s because it was happening then too. It was going to be the last time you could see Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richard or Chuck Berry or whatever. And I went out yeah. and I saw all those acts and I feel kind of the same way now. And yeah. it's kind of it's kind of a shame. This generation of of musicians are now all seem to be retiring. Yeah, and there was such a joy in the music that they made, not to sound like kind of immersed in like Jerry like Jurassic <laughs> Jurassic <laughs> era, but Truly, you know, I think some people make kind of that soul pop thing in an ironic way, but by going to someone like Fred Mullen, who produced Dan Hill in America and is, you know, now 70, and, but still really like 
talented and relevant and technically proficient, we're able to really tap into the heart of this kind of music. So the people he brought on board, like Pat Coyle, who has played with Michael McDonald and Larry Paxton, who's the bass player at the Opry, like just wonderful people that would play these songs, not in an ironic way, like not in a cute indie way, like just play them, you know, <laughs> it's awesome. Well, let's talk about the inspiration for some of these songs. Uh, the uh, track Loose Wig was inspired by a Rolling Stone article about Donald Fagan. Mm-hmm. How so? so? Well, there was an article uh, in Rolling Stone where the writer, John uh, Blistein, asked Donald Fagan what he was doing with his time um, in pandemic. And he said all these crazy things. <laughs> he said, like, <laughs> you know, I'm just gargling Clorox under a sun lamp and, you know, the loose wigs in DC. And um, I don't know, it was really playful. And we imagined more of what he might be doing. Like maybe go down to like the video store and get some VHS tapes and just (laughs) hunker down, you know? So that song came from that, but it also came from seeing the classic albums documentary of the making of Asia, the Steely Dan record where, um, you know, you could really see how they played. And I really wanted to make like a keyboard riff that was really hard hitting you know like you you don't see that like a lot of people are trying to be too cool for school but like those those players just like went for it so i tried to do that musically with loose wig there's a song called jack all we need is a little more jack our loves come back is forever enough that was inspired by a Jack Wagner song called All I Need. Tell me a little bit about that. There are unsung heroes of the 80s, you know, like, I mean, Jack Wagner, I didn't know he was a golfer. Uh, so how crazy is that? And I thought he deserved a song. <laughs> and um, a little homage to like just that TV era too, right? The TV actor, you know, he's still on TV doing things. And I just think it's great to celebrate some of these people that, uh, unusual people that you might not write about. Who did you recently sing with that I was reading about? Did you do something with like Iron Maiden or someone? Who did you, who were you singing with? <laughs> I wish I <laughs> sing with Iron Maiden. Um, I'm on the new Def Leppard album that's coming out. Maybe that's, that's yeah. It's really interesting. Happen, they, yeah. yeah, how does it happen? Um, Joe Elliott called me last year and said, we're going to do a symphonies record and we like to use your cover of Pour Some Sugar on Me and you can play and sing on it and I'll sing with you. And then they put the Royal Philharmonic on it. It was just incredible. That has to be just one of those like really unusual uh, zigzags that you don't really see coming. Like I didn't really ever think that they would hear it, let alone record it. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that is uh, super cool. And congratulations on the new album. Yeah, thank you. And it's always so nice to talk to you. You've been listening to M. Griner on The Richard Krause Show. Find her new album, Business and Pleasure, wherever you buy fine music. Oh, be sure to check out the Def Leppard record, too. That sounds very cool. Let's meet Gord Sinclair, best known as the bass player and one of the songwriters in The Tragically Hip. He's now a, quote, reluctant solo artist with a new album on the way. His new single, Ghoul Guy, marks a continuation of the solo career he never anticipated embarking on before the 2017 passing of the tragically hip frontman Gord Downey. Following decades of making music with the band's frontman, Gord Sinclair continues to honor his friend through music. The new song is a follow-up to the debut solo project, 2020's Taxi Dancers, which was released to critical acclaim, and this one brings back a more rhythmic and driving rock and roll energy that just might put you in the mind of the tragically hip. Have a listen to this song. Ghoul Guy, the lead single from my guest Gord Sinclair's forthcoming solo album, due out this spring. I've been reading some interviews that you did at the time that Taxi Dancers came out, so a few years ago now, and you called yourself a reluctant solo artist back yes. then. Do you still feel that way? Uh, I, I, I do, honestly. I mean, given my, you know, given my druthers, I would obviously much rather have Gord still here even if we weren't playing. Um, but I, I really, I really enjoyed my role in the hip, you know, Gord was a phenomenal front man. Um, having stepped into those shoes just a little bit already doing this, you realize what it, what it actually takes, you know? And, and, um, so in retrospect, I, I actually don't mind the, uh, the view of Gord's rear end playing the bass beside the drum kit, you know? Um, but that said, I mean, I know I, 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 I've said it in the past and, and, but it's quite true that I know he wouldn't want us, any of us to stop making music. So here I am, you know, uh, still plugging away and, and, and still doing it if, if for no other reason than just to sort of honor what we, we did together for so long. Well, we're here to talk about the single, and we will, but I, I also read that he, when he knew that the end was near, encouraged you to find someone else to sing, and, and, and is that a true story that he said, but you you have to keep going, even without me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he mentioned that to me uh, during my last visit with him, um, and I know Paul uh, Langlois from, from the group spent an awful lot of time with him, and it, it came up on, a, on occasion. Mm -hmm. uh, he just didn't see the hip stopping and, and was encouraging us, giving us his blessing. And, and um, it's not something that we've ever really seriously considered, to be perfectly honest. It's hard to conceive of the tragically hip with, without Gord, without any of us, honestly. We, we were at it for so long um, that, uh, you know, it, it's still there. You hear the songs on the, on the radio and... Um, and I got the chance to play a few of them uh, just when I was gigging with the Trues uh, back in December at the Danforth. And you, you can see the resonance and there's there's a magic in that. But uh, 
without the, the thing being intact. I mean, no disrespect the groups of replaced members and stuff, but it, it, it's certainly not for us. Now, when you were in the hip, you used to write in the 80s anyway, so or the early 90s, I guess. The songwriting turned into kind of a collective. You called it woodshedding the songs yeah. uh, rather than you saying, okay, here's my song. What do you think? And, you know, going from there. Um, it, have you continued that style of songwriting with new players or how does it work for you now when you're coming up with new material? No, ironically, I'm, I'm right back to full circle from when I started <laughs> as a songwriter. Um, I, I used to love that about being in the hip because you were never under any pressure. In fact, it, it was, there was a, a benefit to not finishing a song idea because mm. you could just bring a riff or a melody or even a piece of a lyric to the guys and there was always someone, oh, that's cool. I've got something that goes with this. And that's how we wrote as a group. Um, Gord took over the, song, the the lyrical duties of the band in, in the early 90s, you know, being the front guy, he wanted to express his words, which for me as a songwriter um, was great because the, the writing the lyric and, and putting the words to melody in a, in a cohesive fashion was always the, the, the most time consuming part of the gig. Um, but now, you know, that's, I guess that's the, the benefit of a global pandemic. You know, you get locked down and you got lots of time to yeah. try to find the, the rhyme for orange, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Door hinge, I think, is yeah, the only exactly. rhyme that anyone ever we comes change up change orange to tangerine in my case, and then it kind of opens <laughs> up lots of possibilities. So. And this new single, uh, Ghoul Guy, has like a, just a crazy rock and roll riff that uh, sort of powers the thing. Uh, and it's funny, before we turned on the record button here to do this interview, we were talking about a, a Godzilla poster that you have behind you. And you're like, I like, you know, I like things that are big and old, my music, my movies, all that kind of thing. And this kind of has that, that resonated with me when you said it, this song has this like big time rock and roll feel to it. And it's a lot of fun. Oh, well, that's cool. I mean, I, I, that's really sitting around the house while I'm writing. It's always been my case. I'm always first and foremost looking for a riff. That's yeah. how I. That's what I did with the hip, the hip as well. You know, once you once you get on something that sticks with you uh, and 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 just has that propulsive element. I mean, I'm I'm an old punk rocker. You know, um, that's that's my my bent has always gone that way. You're listening to Gord Sinclair on the Richard Krause Show. His new single Ghoul Guy is available now wherever you buy fine music. This was actually the the Ghoul Guy was the last last song that I came up with the record i did about a month before we started recording and it's one of those times where you're sitting around kind of unconsciously noodling on the guitar and you, i landed on it yeah. and and it just evolved really really quickly from there because the the riff stuck with me and stuck with me and it 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 it, it, re, it reminded me of a hip song you know it reminded me it took me back to the late 80s early 90s when i was writing for the group when you're playing guitar, because you, you play guitar in this, in the hip, you played the bass and yes. guitar too, I suppose, but sometimes, but the, the bass primarily is what I know you as. They look similar, but they're, they're two different things. They serve two completely different functions in a band. So, 100%. Yeah. So has the playing the bass influenced the way you play guitar? Is there a more rhythmic feel to your guitar playing, do you think, because you were part of this amazing rhythm section for so long as a bass player? Yeah, I, I think I've always been really conscious of of the right hand for sure. I mean, that's how I that's that's what I've always admired most about you know rock and roll. There's only a certain number of chords and progressions and stuff like that, but the nuance of the of of the rhythm and the drive and the beat of a song to me that's always what's 
caught my attention first. And then it's the riff and then it's the melody and then it's the lyrics. And that's my way my brain always worked. Interestingly enough, I mean, I, I, as a bass player, I have the great fortune. I played with the same drummer and a fantastic drummer for, for 30 years. So I, I don't really think too much about rhythm anymore because oh. it's just sort of ingrained in, in my hand and in my brain, you know, but interestingly enough, you, you, you get to the situation I'm in now where I'm singing and playing. It's really, really tough to play bass and sing at the same time. I've heard it's, that. It, it's, it's much like the, you know, what's required to be a drummer where, you know, pretty much anybody can do two things at once, but you throw in the third and throw in the fourth. And then, so my hat's off to, to the guys that actually do it, you know, Mac owned uh, Sting, yeah. and because it's it's a really tough thing. But um, basically, with me playing the playing guitar, the, the the what I'm singing is taking the melody, and the bass you're playing in between the melody and with the drums. So that's what's what makes it a little more challenging. Yeah, I read an interview where you said something about uh, finding the holes in the melody, and that's where you play the bass. <laughs> That's exactly that's exactly what I do. You, you, you look for your space, and, and uh, most importantly, you know when to leave the space. You let the let the melody take over. That's the key to songwriting. The key to playing uh, is knowing when not to play. Yeah, one hundred percent. We were really fortunate. We made our first two records in the hip with with Don Smith, um, um, who'd worked you know with Petty and, and Keith, and and just he we we learned an awful lot. Uh, from him and that's he drilled that into me while we were making up to here you know like not to underestimate the, just holding a note and letting letting things sort of fill in as they were or or just leaving the, a dramatic pause well i think it's when you're first starting out you want to fill the space you yeah. want to be big you want to you know show what you can do and i think it's a sign of confidence after a certain point where you can take a step back and say you know i'm not going to fill this up with unnecessary sound 100 percent, yeah songwriting and performance is not like radio you don't have to be afraid of dead air let's talk about the ghoul guy is it true that it's about mark zuckerberg you announced that on stage uh a little while ago and i was wondering uh what the what exactly the inspiration was well it it, it very much is honestly and i i uh i was watching the news releases um, after Frances Hogan, I think is her last name, H-A-U-G-E-N. Anyway, she was the whistleblower uh, at uh, Facebook, uh, now Meta, I guess, and really uh, illuminated and confirmed what I had already felt, that they were sort of exacerbating our more negative tendencies mm -hmm. in order to drive traffic, in order to sell more advertising revenue. And, and here's someone that was at the upper echelons of the company and, and really kind of made it official. And, Obviously, I'm a I'm a I'm a bit of an old fogey, and and uh, I was been slow slow to the social media and, and not really understanding it so much. And, and you kind of realize that uh, under the auspices of trying to create this global social network where we can all get along and stuff, it's actually going the exact opposite mm -hmm. direction. It's trying to exacerbate tensions and and partisanship and and conflict and and conflicting opinions in between people, which is kind of the opposite of of building better and stronger communities, which we really, really need to get on, you know, and it, uh, from that, the, the lyric actually came really, really quickly for me, you know, um, it's part of the problem. And obviously we all went through it during the, the lockdown and stuff where you, you know, you can see your neighbor through your window or across the balcony and you can wave hello, but do we ever really actually take the time to walk across over the driveway yeah. um, and 
have a conversation with someone face to face, you know, and I think that's ever more important. If we didn't learn anything from the pandemic, it would be that we need to, to embrace our community, our local store owners, our neighbors, our friends, you know, that we were cut off from for such a long period of time. And um, so Google Guy really is, you know, about this culture out there. Of, of these big tech founder guys that are building this cult of, of uh, worship, mm -hmm. what they do and their wealth and stuff. But it's, it, it makes you question whether it's for their benefit or for ours. And I, I think it's fairly clear that they're the ones that are benefiting from it the most. I have a line in there about, you know, you don't know your neighbors, but the fellow you're writing a song about has a rocket ship. Travels to space on its own, which is really weird. Again, I'm old enough to remember when the space race was between super national powers, not wealthy uh, tech guys. So it is interesting to uh, hear you talk about that. When I think of the philanthropic work that you and the the hip as a as a collective did, it, you always had a cause. You always had um, a, a way of giving back to communities. You're doing right now a film company to make movies in Kingston, that sort of thing. So there's lots of interesting um, philanthropic work there. Do you think that there's a direct line from that back to the punk rock days where your music was probably socially driven was about local and 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 really feeling and really absolutely being passionate about the things that you were singing about yes one 100 i mean e even before i started to play uh i was inspired as a young man by um the energy of groups like the clash and the and the lyrical sense of groups like the Clash. i'm a big believer in the power of visual arts, musical arts, um, to drive social change and to inspire social change. And, and part of that is the actual ability to get people in a room together. Um, and it has to be something more than, you know, yummy, 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 I've got love in my <laughs> tummy, especially when you're observant enough to see what's going on around you and suggest that we could maybe be doing a little bit better together. Um, the other big thing about it too is that it, for a young musician, seeing those groups when I was in my mid-teens, it was inspiring. It, it, it made me want to do that myself. Mm -hmm. And I, if I think, boy, if we don't encourage our young musicians to pick up that mantle and, and write songs that have beauty melodically but heft lyrically, then we're going to be in big trouble down the way. There's always been a pop component. I'm a big fan of pop music and mm -hmm. stuff, but I'm also a big believer in the potential of music and all of us to, to really drive social change. It's a really important thing. You're listening to Gord St. Clair on The Richard Krauss Show. Find his album, Incontinental Drift, wherever you buy fine music. It feels that way when you listen to the lyrics of uh, Ghoul Guy, when you think about all the work that the hip did. And I think that is... Uh, along with this incredible music uh, that the hip uh, has left behind and continue to release the, the, the live records that are coming out are great. The one from the Roxy is amazing. Cool. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. That must've been just a wild night. That is one of the legendary clubs yeah. ever in rock and roll. And, yeah. and it, and it sounded, well, the, the music to me, the record sounds sweaty and immediate and just like a rock and roll record. Yeah, it was an incredible thing. And in the process of doing the anniversary release of Road Apples, John Fay, our drummer, was going through the, you know, the, the labyrinth of, yeah. of tapes uh, uh, for our record company. He, he described it like 
like being in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we end up not being able to find half the tapes from that session, but in midst everything else were these two reels of, uh, of, of tape that Don Smith, the guy who produced our records, um, recorded from the Westwood One truck way back in the day. And well, you put them on and, and literally I, I, I get goosebumps thinking about it because I'm, I'm transported right away. You're hundred percent right. You can feel how hot yeah. and sweaty and grimy and exactly what rock and roll was supposed to be yeah. like. And, and uh, you know, it turns out we were, we were a pretty good little band back then too. It was, <laughs> it's a, it was, it was a great show and, and it just, yeah, it was, it was fun. It's a, uh, it, and I'm glad it finally, uh, you know, found it, found a hearing after all these years. So what I was saying before I got sidetracked there was that I think that the the legacy of the hip may very well be not only this incredible musical catalog that you leave behind that that continues to grow with I'm sure you'll find more tapes and interesting things to release over the next little while, mm -hmm. uh, but also the philanthropic work and and making sure that the causes that uh, that you supported were front and center and yeah. I think that is um, you know th that that takes you back to punk rock it takes you back to folk singers it takes you i mean there's there's a, a long musical tradition of that and i think the the hip falls squarely into that mold yeah well it's kind of you to say I, I i couldn't agree more i mean uh, we didn't invent this i mean when we were really young we got the invite early early 90s 91 92 to support rush uh yeah. at maple leaf gardens um and it was literally like a pinch me moment in our career it was kind of like oh God, how could this any get get any bigger than this? Exactly. And then, then it turned out really it was, it was a benefit that they would put on annually for their local United Way. And it was again, we just picked up the mantle from those guys. It's it was hundred percent the right thing to do when you can gather enough people through your music to stand in one place. Uh, you know, you can you can do an awful lot of good, not only just from a music perspective, from a but from a, from a philanthropic perspective as well. And and, and Gord. Uh, you know, he led from the front on that matter. I mean, his very last project was 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 Secret Path, and and the Downey Winjet continues to to really advance the cause of truth and reconciliation. And I'm I'm so proud of him for that. And I, I'm I'm proud of the work that the band did over the years and what we continue to do. It's important. It's it's a big part that the that the arts play in our, in our society. Uh, Gord, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, Richard, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for the support. You've just been listening to Gord St. Clair of The Tragically Hip. His new solo album is called Incontinental Drift, and it's available now wherever you buy fine music. We're going into the vault to listen to an interview I did a few years ago with legendary rock and roll photographer Mick Rock. He passed away in 2001 at age 72. But this is such a delightful interview, and he worked with so many cool people that you'll want to hear about. I thought I'd give it another listen. Here's Mick Rock. Mick Rock is in studio now. You have seen his work for your entire life. You've seen the cover of... That's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it, it, it is so uh, omnipresent in so many people's lives. The cover of Ian the Stooges, Raw Power, Queens, uh, Queen 2 and Sheer Heart Attack, The Ramones, End of the Century, Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll, not to mention, and here we're going to go down the rabbit hole a little bit with me because I'm such a huge David Bowie fan, not to mention the David Bowie photographs. And... When I first became aware of your name was seeing it on the side of photographs in Hit Parader magazine, seeing it on the back of album covers and that sort of thing, mostly 
in Hit Parader magazine, mostly related to David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust. You were David Bowie's personal photographer for those days. Give me a sense of what it was like to be in the middle of that maelstrom. I mean, this was someone who hadn't been particularly successful up until this point, and all of a sudden cuts all their hair off, dresses differently, creates an album, which I still listen to about once a week, and all of a sudden is the biggest rock star in the world, and you were there for it. Yeah, and we're looking back, that was, I mean, at the time, it was incremental. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, but yeah, now I look back, and of course I have, there's a couple of other photographers did great pictures of him, but they were in the studio. I wasn't a studio photographer, and I toured with David. So um, I do, you know, pictures of him sleeping, eating, especially doing his makeup, makeup <laughs> or getting prepared backstage, uh, hanging around in his underpants, no less. <laughs> uh, and, um, well, David was a very smart, of course, yeah. it's, it's, I, he's, people say, how do you feel? I said, well, it's so strange with David because he's gone, mm-hmm. but he's everywhere. I mean, in a way... In some ways, as far as the modern world is concerned, David Bowie, not for older people necessarily, or not that older people don't like him, certainly, you know, 70 and 80-year-olds, it's still (laughs) the Rolling Stones because they're still going, or Bob Dylan even. But but I I don't think the kids relate as much to those, but everybody, and when I did this massive exhibition, only when I was down there about a month ago in Mexico City at this huge museum, like 150 prints and huge prints, there was so much media. And when all the, you know, when we when I did talks and that, the kids, came, and they were young, mm-hmm. all wanting the autograph and pictures of David. But David was a futurist. I mean, you look back at Ziggy Stardust, you look back at the music, Again, God bless the Rolling Stones. Certainly would never knock them for going out on stage, and they're not that much older than me. And I go, oh, my God, I love it, you know. But David, David, you listen to Ziggy, you listen to Hunky Dory, which is the album that really turned me on to him. It doesn't sound like old music. No, I mean, not that people mind old music. Yeah. Look at all the nostalgia acts there are out today making a ton of money, and they haven't had a hit in 20, 25, 30 <laughs> years, but they can trot out. Yeah. You know, I would think of a band like Journey, not to pick on Journey, who were never a band that interest. None of that REO, Speedwagon, Kansas. No, that was not, and I never photographed any of them. I, well, I was a city boy, for starters. Yeah. Um, and... Um, it's it just sounds like today or you listen to something a bit later young americans mm-hmm. or or um you listen to the scary whatever it is you're listening to of david and even the look i mean ziggy okay. stardust is so postmodern still 40 years later it's uh yes and i did it and of course i was didn't really have a lot of perspective i was it was all intuitive and about the relationship and not thinking about it, but enjoying it. You're listening to legendary photographer Mick Rock on The Richard Krause Show. He's the man who photographed the 70s and so much more. But to see it 
grow, and it did grow quite fast. I met David in the in March of seventy two, and it was that Ziggy was actually over by November seventy three. I mean, it was a short burst, and he really didn't play. And he did in Tokyo play a very big uh, um, show, but. Really, in London and New York, I mean, he wasn't playing stadiums. In fact, nobody was playing stadiums yeah, yeah. in the in those days, um, unless it was for the Monterey or um, well, Woodstock or, or something. Well, like that. Yeah, 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 but there weren't many of them either. The Isle of Wight had started, I remember, but um, they. But they were playing places like uh, the Hammersmith Odeon. You know, probably three, four, or five thousand people at a time. That would be a big rock show. At, the time. At that time, and for him, I mean, when I took the picture of him gnawing away on Mick Ronson's yeah. guitar, which became such a, at that time, yeah. I mean, today, it's a and different world. An outrageous world. image from yeah, For that period, yeah. yeah. Um, there were a thousand people at that concert, and that was his biggest audience to date. Wow. And I be do believe, again, sometimes I have good recall because of all the yoga I do, but sometimes... <laughs> But it, it might have been the day after the release of Ziggy Stardust. So the full thing hadn't happened, right. but he had built enough momentum for him. When I first saw him at, what was it, Birmingham Town Hall in March, remember that's March, April, May. This is only maybe three months later. So that happened very quickly. Um, he, um, he was up to 1,000 people, and yeah. that was a big deal for him at that point in time. Um, and he never, he played Earl's Court, but not the big Earl's Court. I think I saw uh, the Grateful Dead there in right. the summer of 72, uh, and I think they filled the bigger space because, you know, they had this but, hippie following. But reading about it at the time, it felt to me like it, there was this wave happening. I didn't know there were only a thousand people there. He had bodyguards. He had like no, it, the theater of yeah, it all. It was yes. it was the theater of it all, and that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about the photographs as as images of a moment. He was a in star time. before he was a star. He was treated like a star, and that was part of the game, mm -hmm. right? Like to have a personal photographer. Yeah. I mean, the thing with me was I didn't cost much. I mean, he couldn't have had, like, one of those because they couldn't have afforded it. Yeah, David Bailey was not going to be no, his... I was uh, gonna yeah. put, no, he wasn't. <laughs> um, but um, it, it was very personal, but, it, but in a very cool way. And it wasn't... That came a little bit later. It wasn't full-stretch sex, drugs, and yeah. rock and roll. I mean, 73, that was starting to gear up and, you know, the toilet runs and things like that. And, of course, by toilet runs, legendary photographer Mick Rock is talking about snorting cocaine. What a fascinating look into the early years of David Bowie's career from someone who was right there, the late, great Mick Rock. A big thanks to Mick Rock for sharing those stories. A big thanks to M. Griner for coming by earlier to tell us about her new album, Business and Pleasure, available now wherever fine music is sold. Also, a big thanks to Gord St. Clair. Find his album, Incontinental Drift, wherever you buy fine music. As always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.